And it would be really helpful if you had your Bible open in front of you at the passage that we had read from Mark chapter 10. Well, without doubt, the big story in London this week centered around one man. And hopefully, here's a picture of him. Anyone in JF or Fusion recognize this man? Anybody? Mm, Not many. This is Isaac McQuala, and he's an athlete from Botswana who was due to compete in the the 400 meters final at the World Athletics Championships that's taking place not far from here, just up in Stratford. But unfortunately, because he'd been sick a few days before the final, the authorities wouldn't let him compete. They put him into quarantine. But he, he felt fit and well. He felt that he could run. So he made the trip to the Olympic Stadium and turned up there hoping to be let in. But unfortunately, they didn't let him in. They, he was denied entry into the Olympic Stadium and denied his chance to race. And of course, he was heartbroken because he'd been training all year for this one event. And at the last moment, he was prevented from entering into that packed Olympic Stadium and competing for, for a medal. You see, for Isaac McWaller, entering into that stadium and running in that event was hugely important. But the passage that we're looking at today talks about entering into something that is far more important for all of us. And that something is the kingdom of God. If you've been with us for the past few months as we've worked our way through Mark's gospel, you'll have noticed Jesus talking about the kingdom of God. In fact, the the very first words that Jesus is recorded as speaking in Mark's gospel are these. The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Now, Jesus' claim that the kingdom of God had come near would have been hugely significant for any Jews living at the time. You see, God had promised that he was going to deal with our sinful rebellion, our sinful rebellion against our maker and all the brokenness that has come into the world because of it. And that the way he was going to do that was by establishing a new eternal kingdom a kingdom of rescued people living under the rule of a promised king. And the message of Mark's gospel is that this kingdom of God has now broken into our world because the promised king, Jesus, has arrived. And what Mark's gospel has also been telling us is that this question of whether or not we are in the kingdom of God, is hugely important for us. Remember last week, those shocking words of Jesus. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. See, inside of God's kingdom is eternal life. Outside of it is eternal punishment. 
And there is no third option. So you see, for, for all of us here this morning, there is nothing more important than whether or not you are in God's kingdom. Maybe uh, at the moment, the things that seem to have the, the biggest bearing on your, on your life and your happiness might be whether you get into that, the secondary school that you want to get into, or whether you get into that group of friends that you want to, or whether you make it into the, the, the first 11 of that sports team, and whether you can finally get a foot onto the housing market. But let me tell you, all of those things pale into insignificance compared to whether you enter into God's kingdom. So therefore, the, the key question for us all this morning has to be, well, how do I enter the kingdom of God? Who are the, who are the people who enter into his kingdom? And that's what this passage in Mark's gospel is going to show us this morning. Now, remember where we, we are in, in Mark's gospel. Jesus has started to teach his disciples, his uh, group of 12 closest followers, that he's going to be killed by the Jewish authorities and he's going to rise again three days later. But his disciples just don't get it. And now Jesus is, is on his way to Jerusalem. He's on his way towards that death that he's been talking about. We see in verse 1 that Jesus has left Galilee where he had been and has entered into the region of Judea. Judea is the region where Jerusalem is. See, he's heading on a journey towards his death. And on this journey towards Jerusalem, he's going to be teaching his disciples some key lessons about his kingdom and about who enters it. In fact, he's going to completely turn on its head his disciples thinking about who enters God's kingdom and what's important in that kingdom. And you'll have noticed when that passage was read for us that it, it kind of splits into, into three different sections. First, you've got a section that talks about the Pharisees. Uh, then the last section talks about a, a rich man. And sandwiched between those two sections, uh, we have one that's talking about um, a group of children. And what we're very simply going to do this morning is to look at these three different groups in that order because it's, it's in his encounters with these three different groups of people that Jesus teaches the disciples, and teaches us about who it is that enters into the kingdom of God. So first of all, in verses 1 to 12, we have the Pharisees. Now, if you're, if you're quite new to the Bible, the Pharisees were a group of ultra-religious Jews who lived at the time that Jesus was around. They were immersed in God's law in, in the Old Testament, they were so focused on rule-keeping that they'd added on an extra few hundred rules on top of the Old Testament to keep. They had the reputation of being the most moral and upright people in their society. And if anyone was going to be welcomed into God's kingdom, it was these people. But look, in, in verse 2, 
You see, a group of these Pharisees come to, to question Jesus. They ask him a question about divorce. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? But notice the reason that they're coming to ask this question of Jesus. It's there in verse 2. It's not that they're coming to Jesus with noble intentions, wanting to learn from him. No, verse 2 tells us that they're coming to test him. They want to catch him out. They're probably, in this case, they're hoping that he's going to say something that will get him in trouble with, with King Herod. King Herod had just only just recently had John the Baptist beheaded for criticizing him over his divorce and remarriage. But Jesus bats the question back into their court. So, well, what does the law say? What did Moses command you? And they respond, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. And you can probably tell from their answer that this period was not a great period, a great period to be living as a woman. See, in Jewish marriages at the time, basically the husbands held all the cards. If they found fault with their wife, or if they met another woman who they'd rather marry, they could write a certificate of divorce and send their current wife away. And in fact, their answer to Jesus' question showed that what they were doing was twisting one part of God's law in order to justify them doing the exact opposite of what that law intended. You see, divorce, as Jesus points out to them, was not part of God's plan at all. Jesus takes them right back to creation to show them God's design for marriage. He shows them that this, this bond of marriage was intended to be a lifelong union, a union so deep that when two people marry, you, you no longer have two separate people, but you have one new person in place of the two. And so therefore, it's not something that should be split apart. But the Old Testament law also had to deal with the, the reality that people are sinful and people are hard-hearted. And as a result, divorces will inevitably happen. So the law includes some instructions back in Deuteronomy 24 that applied in that sad situation where a husband had written his wife a certificate of divorce. But that law back in Deuteronomy doesn't condone divorce or it doesn't encourage it. But you see, the Pharisees were misrepresenting that and then using it as a license to dump their wives in favor of marrying another woman. In fact, as Jesus explains to his disciples in verses 10 to 12, in twisting the law in that way, the Pharisees actually ended up breaking the seventh commandment. They were committing adultery. Jesus exposes that these law-obsessed religious moralists were actually law-breakers. You see, under the outward display of upstanding morality, they had hard hearts. Did you notice what Jesus said to them? It was because of your 
It, because, it was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote this. I see, the Pharisees stood in a long line of Israelites who, who refused to listen to God's word. And now they were hardening their hearts against God's promised king and against his words. See, it's all too easy, isn't it, for us as well to hide a hard heart behind an upright, moral, and even religious exterior. It's that hardness of heart that seeks to distort or simply just to ignore God's word when it's convenient for us to do so. So the first great shock in this passage is that these respectable religious people who everyone would have thought to be on the inside of God's kingdom turn out to be on the outside of it, excluded by their hardness of heart. So who enters God's kingdom? Well, first of all, we see that it's, it's not the hard-hearted Pharisees. Okay, but secondly, what about, what about the rich man that we find in verses 17 to 31? Well, straight away, you'll see that uh, this guy is very different to the Pharisees. He comes to Jesus with a completely different attitude. He runs to meet Jesus. He bows before him and, and addresses him with reverence. He calls him good teacher. Unlike the Pharisees who didn't show Jesus any respect. Like the Pharisees, he, he asks a question of Jesus. But unlike the Pharisees, his question is clearly not intended to catch Jesus out. He's not throwing down a banana skin hoping for him to slip up. No, he seems genuinely to want to learn from Jesus. And he asks him there in verse 17, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now the the answer that he gets from Jesus probably wasn't the one that he was expecting. Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And then Jesus simply takes him back to the, the Old Testament law. You know the commandments. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, you shall not defraud, honor your father and mother. And the man says, Look, I've kept all of them since I was a boy. Now the disciples at this point must have thought that they'd struck gold. See, not only is this guy concerned about eternal life, he's a, a model law-keeping citizen. In fact, he's so good that God has blessed him with wealth and success. Surely this is the kind of person that enters into God's kingdom. In fact, surely this is the kind of person that God's kingdom is all about. See, the rich man clearly believed that that he was fundamentally a good person and that all he needed to do to earn himself eternal life was to take on board some extra moral teaching from this new rabbi. We see Jesus isn't just a good teacher. He's God. And being God, he knew what was in this man's heart. He knew this man was not as good as he appeared. And so Jesus does the most loving thing that he could do for this man. He shows him his sin. 
One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. See, Jesus' question exposes that this man had an idol. This man had put wealth at the center of his life rather than God. He wasn't the good man that he thought he was and that he appeared to be. In fact, in treasuring his wealth before God, he was breaking the first and most fundamental commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. So Jesus calls him to repent of his idolatry and to follow him. But he's not willing to do that. And so he goes away, keeping his earthly wealth, but forfeiting the very eternal life that he was so keen to inherit. See, despite appearances, this man who seemed such a dead cert to enter God's kingdom turns out to miss the mark. And then Jesus turns to his disciples and gives them some teaching that leaves them totally gobsmacked. Jesus draws this vivid picture of just how difficult it is for the rich to enter God's kingdom. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. By using this intentionally over-the-top picture of the largest land animal that they would have known, going through the, the smallest opening that they would have known, Jesus is making the point that this, this is not just difficult, this is something that is impossible. And then the disciples say something that actually initially seems a bit odd. They say, well, who then can be saved? It seems a bit of a strange thing to say. I mean, what's, what is so special about the rich that if they can't be saved, no one else can be saved? Now, to, to understand why the disciples say this, you need to understand that in that culture, they considered, considered wealth to be a sign of God's blessing on a morally good life. In other words, there is a direct relationship between people who have wealth and moral goodness. So you can can kind of see the logic of what the disciples are saying. If even the rich, the really good moral people, the ones who are so moral they've been blessed with wealth by God, if even they can't get into God's kingdom, then how is anybody else going to get into God's kingdom? I mean, if people like this guy can't be saved, then no one can be saved. And actually, Jesus confirms it there in verse 27. With man, this is impossible. It is impossible for you or I, in our own strength, in our own moral goodness, to enter God's kingdom and to inherit eternal life. I think probably deep down in our society we tend to believe that that most people are are deep down fundamentally good and that with a a bit of a bit of moral guidance and effort we'd be able to merit a place in in God's kingdom but actually what these passages from Mark is showing us is that no one 
is good enough to enter God's kingdom. Not even the very best in society. That's what Jesus says to to the rich man, isn't it? Why do you call me good? No one is good. It's the words of that, that song that we sang earlier with the kids, Mighty, Mighty Savior. No one is good. No one is holy before God. But if of course, that begs the question, if, if no one is good enough for God's kingdom, then how on earth does anyone enter it? Well, we see that from our final group of people in verses 13 to 16. See, in, in verses 13 to 16, uh, a group of people, presumably parents, bring their children to Jesus so that he might bless them. These are probably quite small children, quite young children, because we read in verse 16 that Jesus takes them in his arms and blesses them. Now, you've got to understand that children in that society were regarded very differently to children in our society. Basically, at that time, in contrast to the the Pharisees and the rich man, children didn't carry much status at all. They were somewhere towards the bottom of the, the social ladder. I mean, obviously, they were, they were important to their parents, but in general, they should be seen and not heard, and preferably not seen, if at all possible. And so the disciples intercept these troublesome parents, and they rebuke them. The disciples seem to think that they're some kind of bouncers for Jesus, deciding who gets access to their VIP master. So they, they rebuke the parents for having the temerity to bring their kids to Jesus. What are you thinking? Get out of here. Don't waste the master's time with children. What have they got to offer him? Look, he, ha- he hasn't got time for these people. They're not important enough for him. He's got more important things to do and more important people to meet. Notice, by the way, that when the, the rich man ran up towards Jesus, the disciples weren't rushing to intercept him. Now, Jesus was not impressed. Look at verse 14. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. Now, that word that's translated indignant is a very strong word. Jesus isn't just mildly annoyed by his disciples' behavior. He's positively angry. Why? Well, for one thing, Jesus loves children. But another thing, by preventing these children from coming to Jesus, the disciples were closing off access to the very people who show us how sinful people like you and I do enter into God's kingdom. The disciples, as We've seen it again and again through Mark's Gospels, still don't get it. In fact, we see, even, uh, we see from this that even these guys who are in Jesus' inner circle, even they are not yet themselves the kind of people who enter God's kingdom. So Jesus says to them, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. See, the kingdom of God belongs to people who are like these children. In fact, it's only people who receive the kingdom of God like 
little children that will enter it and no one else. See, it's these small children who show us how anyone enters God's kingdom. Now, it's not because the Bible has some kind of romantic notion of little children being innocent and and morally pure. You you only have to spend two minutes with a child to realize that that's not the case. But as Ben reminded us last week, little children are helpless. They're unable to support themselves. They can't contribute anything. And little children are just really good at receiving. Like receiving machines, aren't they? They will just receive without any attempt to earn, without self-importance, just accepting their helplessness and their utter dependence on their parents. See, if we're going to enter the kingdom of God, if we're to inherit eternal life, we first have to accept that we are not good people. We're not basically good people who with a bit of coaching from God can earn our place in his kingdom. Because the very best of us have hardened our hearts at times against God's word. The best of us are by nature lawbreakers. We've all treasured things in this world more highly than we have God. We can't earn God's favor. The only way into his kingdom is to come to Jesus empty-handed like a helpless child and receive the kingdom from him as a gift of his grace. So you remember the backdrop to these verses. Jesus is heading to Jerusalem to die. Remember, Jesus told his disciples that it is impossible for us in our own strength to enter God's kingdom but that all things were possible for God. And it's at the cross where we see how God was going to make it possible for sinful, hard-hearted, idolatrous people like me and like you to enter his kingdom and to inherit eternal life. See, amazingly, the way that God was going to bring people like you and me into his kingdom was for the king of that kingdom to die in our place. See, the gospel is the good news that in Jesus' death on the cross, God has done that thing that for us is impossible. He's done what is necessary for sinful people to enter into his kingdom of eternal life. So, let me ask you today, have you come to Christ empty-handed, like a little child, agreeing with his assessment of you that you are not good enough for his kingdom, and with childlike trust receiving the gift of salvation that Christ has earned for you on the cross. That's the only way. It is the only way to enter God's kingdom. It's the only way to eternal life. And it's great that we've got Fusion and JF with us this morning because as John reminded us earlier, we see in this passage that Jesus loves children. He loves to have children come to him and to bless them. 
So have you come to him? You can come to him this morning and know that he will not turn you away, but will give you entrance into his kingdom of eternal life. And maybe you're here this morning and you know that you're not what middle-class religious types would consider a good person. And maybe you feel uncomfortable in a, in a church service like this. Maybe it feels like you don't belong here because it seems like there are people here who on the surface have things all together. Well, hear the great news of this passage. See, good people do not get into God's kingdom. It's only people who know that they're not good who come to Jesus like a helpless child with nothing to offer. It's only those people who enter into God's kingdom. It's only those people who inherit eternal life. Let me finish by praying. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who has made it possible for people like us to come into your kingdom. Father, we thank you uh, for his love in going to the cross for us. Father, we pray that you would help us to come to you as little children. You would help us to come to you and trust in that finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ and to receive the kingdom as a gift of your grace. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.